one of my uh, favorite movies. Uh, it's uh, Remember the Titans, and it chronicles the 1971 uh, state championship of uh, T.C. Williams High School in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, the, the challenge that they faced was a time of, of integration, and you I caught it there a little bit, and then one of the things that Coach Boone had to deal with was getting these black players and these white players to play together. There was some, definitely some dramatic license taken in the movie. He did take them to Gettysburg. It wasn't quite as dramatic as that, and, um, and there wasn't 50,000 men who were killed at Gettysburg, actually, but, um, but the gist of it is, uh, reminded me a lot of Acts 6, of people, two different groups needing to come together for the sake of something bigger than ourselves. And I love how he put it. If you don't learn how to do this and allow bitterness and malice, frustration to go unchecked in our hearts, it destroys us. Um, I heard someone say recently, like bitterness and anger and destroy, um, those things in our heart, it's like, it's like drinking. Is it you, Pete, who said this? I don't remember. Like drinking poison and hoping the other guy dies. Um, allowing that to go on in my heart. It destroys ministry. It destroys churches. And uh, so we're going to unpack this a little bit. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 7. And uh, we're going to try to preach this morning. <laughs> a little bit of a scattered morning, but a, but a good morning. And I um, appreciate it, uh, too. And if you're wondering how this played out today, too, uh, first service, I actually started downstairs because it was very important to me to... Uh, to share this with our students first. And uh, for, for 23 years, I've, I've said, and I'm, I'm so happy, I, I think it was probably my response, which probably wasn't, uh, was probably less than uh, pleasant sometimes over the years when people would ask when I was going to uh, maybe someday become a real pastor. And that, that question never bothered me because of me. It bothered me because of what it communicated about the students. And uh, I got to a point where I'm like, you, you want to fight? Good. <laughs> uh, because I love them, and um, and I've told I told them this morning, and um, I said you're not going to get rid of me that easy too. I'm not going to disappear from their lives, and and um, we'll find ways to continue to be plugged in there for sure. Because um, you know, I told our guys, you don't just turn off 23 years um, of of your life. I, I'm not. I can't do that, and um, and so we'll find ways to make that work. But I want them to know that I still love them, and. Um, Anyways, I can digress. We'll talk maybe a little bit more about that tonight, but uh, let's turn to the Word of God, because this is what matters most, right? Acts chapter 6, and we're starting in verse 1, now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued 
to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God, we just pray this morning that your word would shine forth, that your truth would have its way among us in a powerful way this morning. That you challenge us. That we would leave here, not just with more knowledge in our heads, but with the wisdom and the empowerment of your spirit to say, okay, this is what I need to do. This is how I need to change. This is how I need to apply this and live this out in my life. So speak through your spirit to that end this morning, Lord. We need you. We need this word from you because we desire to better serve you. We desire for our church to bring you glory and make an impact in our world for Christ. So we ask this all for the glory of Jesus and the furtherance of the kingdom. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So yeah, we use that clip there as a jumping off point. We see here right at the beginning that the disciples continue to increase. Right. So if you're like me, you, you take this kind of strange encouragement from this because we've been spent all these weeks extolling all the virtues of the early church and how great they were and powerful they were and how, how powerfully present the Spirit was, right? And, it, and it'd be easy for us to, you know, to read that and go, yeah, well, they're the perfect church. And Well, guess what? They weren't the perfect church, right? We see it right here. They were a group of sinners, just like we are. And you know what happens when sinners get together and do life together and serve together? There's friction, there's grumbling, there's complaining. We bother each other sometimes. We get frustrated that things don't happen sometimes, right? It's part of sinners working together and ministering together. And again, I never want to give Satan too much credit in all this, right? So, and I think sometimes the, the problem, he, sometimes he, we make it easy for him. Sometimes he doesn't have to do a lot of work. The wickedness in my own heart really <laughs> does the job sometimes, right? Um, but, you know, we, yeah, we've seen kind of some ebb and flow here, and, and we saw Ananias and Sapphira, and then we see persecution, and, and then some arrest and some physical beatings, and now it swings back, and now there's another kind of a little attack from within, the grumbling and the complaining, and I want us to pay attention to those words because I think we can read those words and think even in our own lives, well, you know, it's not the big sins, a little grumbling here, a little complaint about this ministry, about this person. Like, that's not really hurting anything. But that's the thing. I think that plays exactly into Satan's strategy. He would rather have us be lulled to sleep. Yeah, I don't think a big deal, you know. That's more his game. Yeah, let that complaining go on. Let that grumbling go on. Because what happens is it sits there and it festers and it changes us. And we end up diverting our energy and our attention and our focus to that. And it takes over. And we lose sight of what matters most, right? We see that unfolding here. Let me set the context here for you just a little bit. What the, the issue was over here in Acts 6 was this daily distribution, this diakonia. That's the word for daily distribution. Uh, if it sounds familiar to you, it's because that's where we get the word deacon from. And a diakonia means a service rendered or a rendering of assistance. And what was going on here in Jerusalem at this time is many older people, what they would do, and, and especially widows, if their husbands died, they would move back to Jerusalem, to the holy city, to kind of live out the rest of their lives. 
and uh, in proximity to the temple, and they wanted to be there in Jerusalem, and so they'd moved back. And this was such an issue that, that even the religious leaders, before the church even was there in existence, even the, the religious leaders, they had a, a system set up to give a, a daily distribution and a weekly distribution to the widows. That's how big of an issue it was in Jerusalem. And uh, the daily distribution would consist generally of food and kind of some of the basic staples of, of, of food and daily life. And then the weekly distribution could include clothing, sometimes money. And so that's what, that's what this was issued. The church took that over for their own people and, and took ownership of that for their own widows. All right? So that's kind of what is going on here. And, and they knew, both groups knew, to their credit, God's heart for widows. Right? You read throughout the Old Testament and even through the prophets, one of the charges against Israel as judgment was come upon them was that they weren't caring for uh, the widows. Uh, we see built into the law uh, the significance of caring for widows. You get to James, right? James talks about the concern for widows. First Timothy talks about the concern for widows. So they understood that this was important. It was an important um, ministry of the church. What you had here then, this tension, is you had these two groups of people, and we'll unpack them in just a minute, but you had the Hebrew widows and the Hellenist, or the Greek-speaking widows, and they felt that the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. And the, the, and the act of the apostles seems to give credence to this, that this was legitimate. The terminology, were being neglected, and actually that tent communicates that this actually was, was a problem, and it was a problem, not just a one-time thing, but kind of unfolded over time, as we see it here in this imperfect tense. So it had been a bit of an ongoing issue. There were questions about favoritism, uh, fairness, maybe discrimination. Uh, as you read it, resentment certainly seems to be part of what's at the heart of this. And if nothing else, and I think this was part of the issue too, as the church grew, they were struggling to keep up. And I think you had some management and administrative lapses as well, Right? Kind of like Craig this morning with the email, right? It happened. So the apostles did it too, Rebecca. So, uh, you know. Um, but um, no, it, so it, that was going on too. And they were just struggling to, to, to keep up. And then it led to some resentment. And there was probably, you know, and all of this is going on. So that's kind of the context. That's where the heart of this, um, this challenge, uh, this problem came from here in Acts 6. So let's unpack this a little bit and see what we can learn from it and how the church dealt with it, right? Number one, Except this truth right here, conflict and challenges are inevitable in every church. Right? You often heard maybe the, 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 the joke, uh, you know, the perfect church does not exist. And it's usually followed by the statement, and if you find it, don't go to it because you'll mess it up. All right? Uh, there's no such thing, right? It's inevitable. Conflict amongst sinful people is inevitable. And we see that here, even in the great church of Acts. And in Acts 4.32, we had read, right, they're of one heart and one mind, and that seems to be replaced a little bit here by some schism, by some, uh, some complaining, some grumbling. Friction. Growth often leads to growing pains, which can lead to friction. Challenges are normal. Anyone in this room who's married knows this, Right? Right? Two sinners, I, right? I love my wife more than anyone else in the world. The kids are a close second. Zach, you're a close second. But, right? Um, right? but who probably in this world do I tend to have the most intense conflict with? It's probably my wife. Right? Because they just know each other, and you, that intense relationship leads to that. Right? And I'm sure I probably, I, I, I'm not the only one in this room. Any perfect marriages in here? 
Yeah, you can jump. So Mike, Mike Perrin raised his hand in the first service. So I said immediately we were setting up a Christian marriage counseling ministry in the Perrins and the Buckinghams. So <laughs> I said to Mike after, I'm like, I wonder who's going to raise their hand in second service. So uh, uh, no, right? We know. We know how this works, right? We love our spouse. And there's probably no one in this world has the ability to drive us more crazy than our spouse. We know what buttons to press, right? We know like, oh, they did this and get a little salty about something. Well, I'm just going to do this because I know. Now, I don't do it. But I, the, <laughs> that, just, <laughs> right? We're sinful people in an intense relation. I suggest you the church. It's a group of sinful people in an intense relationship, intense mission. And on top of that, we have an enemy who's constantly attacking us. So conflict and struggle, disappointments, they're going to be part of the deal. We need to accept that. The difference between a healthy, vibrant church and a dying church is not the presence or absence of conflict, challenges, and weaknesses. Every church has those. The difference is how the church responds and adapts. A church that is able to evaluate and take action through change and adjustment will be able to continue on and remain effective and relevant in this world. Even the early church had conflict and challenges, right? Conflict is part of growing and serving together. That was actually, I just explained to you that whole point before I put it up there on the screen. So there's the blank. Conflict is often characterized by complaining. I know this never happens here, Right? Conflict and complaining generally go hand in hand. This word complaining, its lexical definition is displeasure, complaint that's expressed in murmuring, discontent. It goes on to become even more convicting. Its semantic range of the definition of this word includes secret talk and whispering. Right? So I complain. Complain to myself, I get a little grumbly about this or this or this. And then I'm like, Dave, John's jokes are terrible. <laughs> he stands up, right? And Dave's like, Yeah, I can't believe. And then John gets up to preach, and we're both sitting there like, oh, This guy stinks, you know? Right? Now I've shared my complaint, I've grumbled, secret talk, and then Dave tells someone, and then someone, but then, then someone ends up hearing it who, who loves John. And so now they're mad at all. And you see how this goes? This complaining becomes a poison. Conflict is often characterized by this. And, and just to give you an idea of the weight of this word complaining here, this is the same word that we find back in, in the Old Testament. Right? In the Septuagint, they use the same word to, com- to, to, to describe Israel's grumbling and complaining. Right? Because we'll read about this back in the Old Testament. We'd be like a bunch of idiots. We'd never do that. Right? It's the same word. Grumble. The people grumbled three times, four times in this passage. Four times. This is what Israel did. They grumbled. Numbers 11, 1. When the Lord heard it, when he heard what? They're complaining. The people complained. It's the same word. So this word is serious. This word breeds conflict. This word allows conflict to continue on. That's why Paul directly and vehemently states in Philippians 2, 14 through 7, do all things without grumbling and complaining, right? 
After, consider others better than yourself. This is the second most quoted verse in our home, right? Do all, and, and daddy's the one it's often said to, so it's not just the kids, right? But do all, and, and if you read this context, that passage in Philippians 2, too, it's fascinating, right? Because Paul goes on to say, do all things without grumbling and complaining, and he goes on, so that you, you may shine as luminaries. Paul connects their ability to witness in the world and stand out for Christ with controlling their, with grumbling. And it, that's Acts 6, they're going to deal with the complaining. They're going to deal with the grumbling. And like we saw in verse 7, what happened when the grumbling was suppressed and put away? The word of God increased. They shone brighter. Right? So conflict is often complain, uh, characterized by complaining. Conflict and tension often manifest themselves between groups. So I mentioned this a minute ago. This tension is between the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, and the Hebrews. Two different social groups. So there's a little bit of an ethnic issue going on here. Like I said, the Hellenists were Greek-speaking. Probably these were the people who moved back to Israel at some point. They probably grew up outside of Israel. And there was huge populations of Jews that grew up and lived in places like North Africa, Egypt, Asia Minor, right? Most of these people wouldn't have learned Hebrew. Um, they were fully integrated into the Greek culture. But they were still Jewish, at their heart, and so did Jewish practices, right? These are the people on the one side. The Hebrews were most likely, and again, these are generalizations, so it wasn't true of everyone, but the generalizations. Uh, Hebrews were those who most likely grew up in Israel, most comfortable speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, closely related languages, would have been their native tongue. It's very similar to Hebrew, like I said. They would have learned Greek at some level, but they would have been most comfortable with Hebrew and Aramaic. So you have these two groups, both groups would have been zealous for the law, even those raised outside of Palestine. You could grow up outside of Palestine and be zealous for the law. The shining example, this is Saul of Tarsus, right? The Apostle Paul, zealous for the law, highly committed. He grew up outside of Israel. So there you see, you know, you didn't have to grow up there to be zealous. For it. So it's probably both of them. The fact that they're moving back to Jerusalem shows that they value the temple. They value uh, their, their heritage. And so you probably had that. There are probably no serious doctrinal differences between these two groups of people, really. So I think that's significant to know. Because oftentimes, isn't that what it is? It's not the, the significant doctrinal things that we argue over. It's the little things. It's, it's kind of the more insignificant things that we allow us to get like, frustrated and complain about. And I kind of had this here, right? Probably some cultural differences that distinguish these groups from one another. Um, music, food, literature so on. Probably if there's any difference, probably the biggest one would be maybe the way they viewed the purity laws and so on and so forth. I, you know, you could see pretty easily how those who grew up outside of Israel maybe a little bit more lax towards some of the purity, a little bit more integrated into the Greek culture. Not necessarily sinful things, just more integrated. And you had your, your hardline Jewish people growing up in Jerusalem were probably a little bit more particular about ritual purity and things like that. That could have been an area of tension. We don't know all of that, but here's the thing we see that even in the early church, as good as it was there, there was this tendency to cater to those who are like you. Give preferential treatment to those who are most like you. Those who think like you. Those who fit into your box. And I think that's challenging and instructive for us today. Because if we're honest, we also group right? We often think in terms of us, them, me, him, 
We group. There should not be sides in the church. But we do this, right? Sometimes it's young and old. Young marrieds, older marrieds, singles, couples, big families, small families, public school, Christian school, homeschool, rich, poor, sometimes even ethnicities. And sometimes even subtly we divide along these lines and even though we may not be blatant about it sometimes, I think sometimes we can look with a little bit of judgment or whatever you want to call it on the other groups. And the other church, early church understood that this can't be the case. I need to understand that there's beauty and value in the differences, in the different perspectives. Right? So the homeschooler or the Christian schooler or the public schooler needs to understand, you know, there's value in the way that other parent and other family thinks about these things. What can I learn from that? Instead of going like, well, they do this or they do that. And that's just one example. We do this about so many things. We can't divide. Form groups over things. I so appreciated Aaron Schellenberg in, in Brazil this summer. I remember him talking. Aaron got sick uh, middle of the time there, and, and he had to quarantine for just thankfully just two days and able to rejoin the group. But um, I remember him saying as that second week was, was winding down and we were talking about things that we were learning and such, and I appreciate and I learned from Aaron. I appreciate his honesty. Aaron said, you know, he said, when I came here, he goes, one of the things I struggled with was thinking that all of my close friends weren't on this trip with me. What had happened was when Aaron got sick, the whole group made cards, they wrote out things, and they went into his room before he got there and hung these things up and decorated it. And I remember Kevin's item, I was saying, Kevin's the one who brought him down to the room, and he said, Aaron just walked in and looked around and just kind of smiled. And Aaron shared later on, he goes, you know, I thought this, but he goes, what I came to learn is that this is all my family. Uh, Like, these are my friends, too. These people care about me, too, and I care about them as well. And I'm like, man, what a cool lesson. You know, it's not just us and them, it's, it's we. Um, I appreciated that. I learned from that. Got to break down the groups, right? Challenges, conflict, and weaknesses should be dealt with as soon as possible. One of the things that strikes me about this, maybe subtly you, you can kind of pick up who's at fault and who's not at fault here, but Luke doesn't really spend a whole lot of time addressing that. This isn't a blame-finding thing going on here. The account focuses on the solution, not the problem. Luke's emphasis here is clearly on how the church dealt with this significant issue. They knew that this type of divide and division could not exist amongst a group of people who claimed to follow a man who preached love and service to one another in humility, right? They also knew that neglecting widows was a clear act of disobedience to God's will, which is why they were probably so intent on addressing it. So they jumped on this as soon as possible. They worked it out quickly. They restructured. They were willing to morph and change to meet the challenges and demands. They developed a new structure to care for the community. And they did this together. Because they knew if they didn't, that they weren't going to be as effective in ministry. You probably recognize this logo, right? You remember this company? 
Kodak was, that was the thing, man. Back in their heyday, they had 80% of the market share in the United States. They had 50% of the worldwide market share when it came to photography and film and so on. That's huge. They were the juggernaut. One of the things that happened, they declared for bankruptcy in 2012. How could a company who had that kind of influence and power and market share file for bankruptcy? Well, here's why. They failed to adapt to the digital market. They continue to say, like, our bread and butter is in film. Here's the kicker. Back in 1975, it was a Kodak engineer who was the first one to invent the digital camera. Kodak invented that. Right? But the powers that be at Kodak said, and this is what they said, they're like, no. They're like, we're not going to give that any. Who wants to look at pictures on screens instead of on, well, <laughs> raise your hand if you look on pictures on screen, right? And they just kind of, we're not going to adapt. We're not going to change. This is what we do. And they declare for bankruptcy in 2012 because of an unwillingness to pivot, change, go, wow, we got some challenges. They had over 7,000 patents, and they tried at some point when they realized that, oh, no, we missed the boat, but by then it was too late, and they couldn't catch up. The early church realized we got to change. we got to address this. This is a problem. And they did, and that's why they remain effective in ministry, right? Here's some lessons, then, to gather from this. The church was willing to acknowledge and address its weaknesses and problems. Like, oh, we're the perfect church. No, we're not. Right? We've got to be willing to address our weaknesses and problems. Own those. Right? The church was willing to adapt and change. The church needs to be willing to do this. Where are our weaknesses? What can we do better? What can we change to address those weaknesses? What can we change to do these things better? I love this one right here. The church was willing to work together. Note in verse 2. They called the full number of the disciples. This is the terminology Luke uses here to describe the church, the disciples. He wasn't just referring to the 12. The full group of the disciples. They gathered the whole church together to work through this. I love that. They don't fragment the church along these ethnic lines. It would have been a whole lot easier to do this, right? Go like, okay, fine. Let's just have a Hebrew church over here and a Hellenist church over here. And that'll just be easier. Maybe. Better? No. Right? How much better when the church can say, here are our differences, here are our struggles. That's what the world does. Oh, differences? We just separate. We divorce. We form this. We form this. Two different groups. Right? The church should model really well. Like, here are the challenges. Here are the two sides. This is how the people of God solve issues. We come together and we figure it out. And we humbly submit to one another and exchange ideas and change and morph. It was so sad to me. You heard me talk about my church I grew up in. When we went back there for my sabbatical, it was, it was so great in so many ways. One of the things that broke my heart was we got there, and there were some people that I'm like, why aren't they here? There's like three or four families that should be here. And I knew they had been there. They were there when I was there, 35, 40 years. And I had heard that there had been a little bit of tension over worship styles, of all things. And a shocker, right? Um, but it had been some tension over worship styles. And I remember talking to one of the men there. I said, where's... So-and-so, so-and-so. And he's like, well, he goes, they left because of this. And he goes, and I tell you what, I'm so happy because now we have peace. And I remember thinking, 
ah, that broke my heart because I'm like, no, wait a minute. These are two parts of my family. What do you mean now you have peace? It would have been so much better for you guys to figure this out, to have come together, conceded a little bit, and figure out how to make this work. That's what makes us different as Christians. This church didn't do that. They didn't separate. Come together, let's figure this out. And this is what they do. They solve the problem from within. They solve the problem from within. You notice something about the names of these seven men? They're not Hebrew names. They're Greek names. These were Hellenists. The ones from the offended group. So here's the thing. The issue was resolved when both parties were willing to take responsibility to solve the problem. The Hellenists were willing to oversee. But that was only part of the equation. And the other part of the equation, I love this too, right? The Hebrews were willing to cede control to the Hellenists. Right? If it was us in our day and age, we'd probably say, well, we can, but we have to have equal representation. We've got to make sure that, we're, that we, we have some power too. We can't. This church was so marked by humility and spirit-filled that they said, okay, they said, we're, we're, we're complaining. We see the problem. We're passionate about it. We'll take care of it. And the other group said, we trust you to do that and do that well. And both sides come together, willing to take responsibility, willing to be humble to make this work so I think one of the takeaways from this is that uh, those that raise problems and concerns should help be part of the solution, help provide the means to solve it. Daryl Bach writes, since the problem involved the Hellenists, the Hellenists are given the responsibility to solve it. Our Kent Hughes writes this. He, he expands it out. And, and he says, if, if, he's talking about the whole church. If the widows are being neglected, we should be willing to wait on tables. If the Sunday school needs help, we should be ready to assist however we can. If we see a need for a small group, perhaps we should host one. If we see the need for evangelism, we should be willing to share Christ, to be part of the solution. Some of you have been around here long enough to remember Tim and Allison Walker. I don't know how many people, but um, years ago, Tim and Allison Walker, one of the big, uh, God used them in a big way to lead Kathy and I here, and that's a long story. So if you're upset or anything about me or anything, where blame Tim and Allison. I'll give you their phone numbers after. And, uh, uh, Stormers, you guys are around with Tim and Allison, overlap, so uh, you guys are old too, though. So, uh, yeah, you know, but, uh, um, but I remember, I don't know if you guys remember, they left. They, Tim was a basketball coach. He, uh, he coached at Calvin. He was part of their national championship years ago and then uh, moved to Chicago and coached there for a while and has been a couple other places. But I remember when they moved to Chicago and they were really struggling to find a church, the area that they lived. And I remember finding Tim saying, that we, we found this church. Yeah, we found this church, but he's like, man, he goes, they preached the word. Good people there. They preached the word. But he goes, but he, and he never called me by my first name. He was always like Perry. He goes, Perry, though. He goes, first of all, the music. He goes, last Sunday we sang, we sang this song. There is a balm in Gilead. He's like, what, what is that? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, he's like, but their biggest thing, and if you knew Tim and Allison, like they had a heart for hospitality. And they loved people. And they loved, and get, Tim was just so good at that. He said, the thing that we struggle with the most about this church is that, man, they just don't seem to connect well. I, mean, I don't have these opportunities for, for growth and, and, and together and social stuff. And he goes, I just don't know. And I remember Jeff and I were listening to him talk, and Jeff said to him, he goes, Tim, he goes, they got the things that matter most. He said, maybe God led you to that church because you're so passionate about it. You have eyes to see that. Maybe God's going to use you 
to help that church become better at those things. And they stayed. Tim became an elder eventually. And I think they did. They helped that church. It became part of the solution to that frustration that they had. We've seen this here, right? People like Jody and, and Don Van Sletter are like, wow, we have a need with special needs kids. Well, it wasn't like, hey, you know, Craig, Jeff, and, and elders, John, have fun figuring that out. No, like, hey, we'll, we'll do that. We'll take that. Let's, let's, right? And I can, so many other examples of that. Like, that's what it, it involves. That's what they did. Part of that for them, then, the early church, they, they leaned on and empowered godly people outside the leadership. So we're introduced to Stephen and Philip. And by the way, there is something else going on here in this passage. We won't delve into this today, but we're introduced here to Stephen, Philip, and Antioch. Uh, three significant names that are going to come into play later in the book of Acts. But Stephen and Philip, we know a little bit more about them as the story of Acts unfolds. The rest of the guys, not so much. But here's what we do know as we read here in the text. They had a good reputation in the community. And in other words, they lived out their faith. They were full of the Spirit, and they had a spirit of wisdom. They were men of integrity who could administrate and lead. Being full of spirit and wisdom ensured that they would not be swayed by this favoritism thing that had been going on. Right? Wisdom is, is necessary to lead. Our deacons know this. Our deacons have a hard job sometimes. Right? And having to discern like, benevolent distribution and like, what, what, what is a real need and what's a systemic problem and when do we need to offer counseling and, and you know, what's the more pressing need. And, right? Men of, of wisdom, spirit-filled men need to be in place to, to make those decisions. Those are not always easy decisions to make. And here's the thing too. So some of you might be sitting here and going, Oh, well, here's my get-out-of-ministry-free card. That's for, like, the spiritual elite. But if you think about practically what you're saying is, like, these men are full of the Spirit and wisdom. You're like, well, that's not me. (laughs) Okay, so you're not full of the Spirit, right? It's like this is actually should be characteristic of all of us. We all should be in a point spiritually where we can be mobilized to help contribute to the mission, right? G. Campbell Morgan writes about this. Who is is the spiritual person? A man full of the Spirit is one who is living a normal life. Christian life. Fullness of the Spirit is not a state of spiritual aristocracy to which a few can attain. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian man is disease of the spiritual life, a low ebb of vitality. Fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but normal Christian life. So when there's need that arises, and the, the church leadership goes, who can we use to plug this? Whether it's other elders or deacons or some kind of teaching role or some way to help support the ministry of Forest Hills. There should be a lot of people. Maybe giftedness isn't always going to line up, but when it comes to spirituality and people who are led by the Spirit and who have a good testimony, there should be 150 people to be chosen from because we're all walking in the Spirit. That's the expectation for all of us, right? They lay their hands on these men, to confer blessing and authority, they're officially commissioned. I do want to say that I think this is significant. I, I don't think this is technically the creation of the office of deacon. Luke doesn't use that word, deacon, in this passage. That said, I do think this is the forerunner of that position. This is the prototype. Um, and, and, and the description here, what they do here, so closely resembles Paul's description of the office of deacon in 1 Timothy 3. That again, while it might not be an officially named office at this point, this is the model. This is where that flows out of, right? The servants. Here's a significant thing. This, this office of servant, these people who come alongside and serve and you take it later on, this official role of deacon, know how crucial they are to the unity of the church, right? 
Dare anybody to say that the deacon role is the minor league. Dare anyone to say that the deacon, that's like saying uh, to me, like, when are you going to become a real pastor? The youth, youth pastor is not a real pastor. The deacon role is crucial to the functionality and the unity of the church. The leaders cannot do it alone. The apostles in Acts 6 couldn't do it alone. The seven didn't even do it alone. If you read the text carefully, they were the administrators, right? They oversaw this ministry. What does that imply? They weren't the only ones doing it. Who was doing it? Well, we've already seen in Acts that the entire church was responsible for caring for the needs of others. Al Mohler writes this, Every church member should value the time that church leaders and pastors dedicate to the ministry of the word and prayer. Indeed, church members should expect nothing less from their pastors. Every church member should make it his or her goal to find ways to remove burdens from their pastors so that they can invest more deeply in their study of scripture and in prayer. So this thing right here stabbed me in the heart this week. It was a reminder to me. Like, man, I have primary responsibilities, right? The word and prayer. And to be honest with you, probably like most of you, one of those generally comes a little bit easier than the other. Because you sit down for that prayer time and, and you're like, oh, I got to get to the sermon prep. I got to get to this. I got to do this. So then you're looking at it and like, oh, prayer. And I'm like, you know, oh God, just bless everyone on this page. Amen. You know, and you kind of like, like, no. And, I, we, and hey, listen, you got to hold us accountable. Someone came to our office a while back. They wanted to meet with Jeff and I. And they said, I, we're just, I'm just concerned. I appreciate this brother. And his, he said, I want to make sure that you guys are giving attention to the main things that you're supposed to give attention to. Preaching of the word and prayer. You know, that's our role. So hold, us, hold me accountable. But I can't do it alone. Our elders can't do it alone. Our deacons can't do it alone. Right? We need the church working together. And I'm so thankful for this. Right? I don't know what I would do without the Chris Fords who takes control of all this stuff. Like, hey, we need to buy a new speaker. We need to do this. I'm like, Chris, I don't know. He's like, oh, I'll send you the link. You just buy it. You know? Like the Brian Mullers take care of the bus. I, I told Peyton Anderson this week, Peyton Anderson down in youth group, like, I, I've kind of forgotten how to use software. I just yeah, perform it, you know, presentations. Out. So I go out to the youth group. I'm like, Peyton, I don't even know how to do this. And he's like, I got you, man. I told him this week, I said, Peyton, I want you to know something. I can do a better job as a youth pastor because you're here. Because I just ask you to do this and you take care of it. Like, that's huge. We have those people. So many of you sitting out here, right? Wendy, Ford, Rose Cannon, Rebecca. People have served us so well, loved us so well. People who schedule for Nicholas, people who take care of our special needs. Get Olivia's funeral here. People who came, like, we're going to make sure there's cookies. I could go on and on and on. People who take care of the building. On and on. But we got to keep doing a good job of this, right? Delegating and sharing the load with one another. It takes all of us. The service role is such a crucial role. Tom, I'm going to ask the group to come up as I finish here. Um, any Wing Feather fans in here? Andrew Peterson? Okay, my people. Yeah. All right. Like Wing Feather. So it's this, it's this kind of Narnia ish. Andrew Peterson, he's, he's a writer and author. He writes uh, some of the songs we sing. Uh, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Like that's Andrew Peterson. Sings it better than that. But, um, um, but the book, The Wing Feather, I love this series. And, and, and in the world he lives in, or that this, this book takes uh, Annie Era. Did I say it right? Annie Era. Um, there's these three kids that are born. And, and they're royalty. And the oldest is so excited to find out that, oh, I'm the firstborn. I'm going to become the next king. Well, there, it's not that. It's the secondborn who becomes king. 
And the firstborn kid, he's kind of upset about this at first. What do you mean? My little brother's the king? I'm not the king? And they go on to inform him, no, you are the throne warden. The firstborn is the throne warden. He protects the king. He stands beside the king. The king can't be a good king if the throne warden is not doing his job. That's what this cries out to us, right? The church together has to be functioning. The church and its leaders must ensure that it maintains the right priorities as it adapts and changes. When we're all doing what we're supposed to be doing and all pitching in, dealing with the challenges together, it frees us to maintain right priorities of prayer and the word. Close with this illustration and then we'll be done. Um, when it's all done correctly, right? Effective ministry continues. Y- you all know that I like, I like history, right? This is uh, the Apollo 13 crew, bottom right-hand corner. This is Mission Control when radio contact was received after that capsule came through the atmosphere. They didn't know if that was going to come through. And it did. These are the three astronauts on the right Fred Hayes, Jim Lovell, and John Swigert. They're the ones who get all the attention, and, and they deserve that. But what often people don't understand is that when this oxygen tank exploded two days into their trip to the moon, Mission Control had to take over and do things. Gene Krantz is the guy in the white vest next to the man with his hand in the air. And this guy basically said, failure cannot be an option. We have got to make this work. And all of a sudden, people were scrambling. And he was like, nobody sleeps. No one does anything. Everyone's going to have to do whatever they can to make these guys come home. And people began to sacrifice. They, they figured out they had to stay in the command module or in the, in the, the lunar module to, to have the power to get around the moon so they could preserve the command module for reentry. One of the problems was that they needed CO2 filters. And they were two different filters in both of those modules. These guys from Houston had to tell them how to construct a new filter that was made out of a cardboard, duct tape, a sock, and something else. And they figured out how to do it. And that was the mission. No one was too high and mighty. We're like, we got to get these guys home. We got to work together. We got to pivot. We got to change to deal with this challenge because these men's lives matter. We have a mission that matters. There's people out here whose lives matter. And we got to figure out always how to deal with the challenges so that we can continue to be effective in our ministry.